0: Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from Wipeout executive producer Matt Kunitz about reviving the classic physical game show for US cable net TBS at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Stephen Dunleavy, founder and managing director of UK natural history producer Humblebee Films on Life in Colour with David Attenborough. Wipeout returns to TV screens in the US on April the 1st after CableNet TBS gave the green light to a revival of the classic physical game show format, which has been off-air for six years and before that enjoyed a run of seven seasons on ABC. Executive producer Matt Kunitz spoke to Clive Whittingham about bringing back the show and the obstacles the producers had to overcome with filming taking place at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic last year.
1: I'm Matt Kunitz. I'm the executive producer and creator of Wipeout. Uh, I also have a background of doing other big shows like Fear Factor, um, and started my career doing The Real World, one of the very first, maybe one of the very first reality shows.
2: We're here today because Wipeout uh, is coming back, reboot. Why don't you give us the story of uh, of this show and uh, and how we got to this point?
1: So Wipeout uh, was on ABC for seven seasons, basically seven years of Wipeout, uh, and it went away about six years ago but it never really left because Endemol did a great job of keeping it alive on the internet. Um, we had a, a Facebook um, fan page that was 6 million people, and Endemol continued to grow that over the years and continued to put out uh, daily content, which was doing quite well. You know, Each of the videos that they would put out would get hundreds of thousands of hits, and some of them would get millions of hits. Uh, and so I feel like the show never went away, and we always knew that when the timing was right, it would return. And uh, Corey Henson, who was an executive at ABC in the early days, uh, moved on to become uh, the head of alternative programming at TBS. And one of the very first projects that she decided to to bring to her new network uh, was the reboot of Wipeout. So, um, you know, it's awesome because I get to do it with someone that understands the show and loves the show and and, and knows what the show should be. Uh, I think it would be very difficult if we had to do the reboot with maybe someone that just was not as familiar with what works and what doesn't work and and what what makes Wipeout so unique.
2: Tell us a little bit about, like you say, what makes it work and doesn't work. What's behind the show's enduring um, appeal to audiences
0: in your opinion?
1: You know, I like to say that Wipeout is the world's greatest obstacle course designed for people that should never be on an obstacle course. So many of the shows out there, you know, Ninja is an awesome show, but it's very different. Ninja is about you know, extreme athletes coming on the show to show off their extreme athletic prowess. That is not how we cast Wipeout. You know, we look for the average person. It could literally be your mother or your grandmother on the show, which I think makes it incredibly relatable. Uh, and, And I always feel that when I create shows and particularly Wipeout, I want, the viewer to live vicariously through who they see on the screen. And if you think about like a show like Fear Factor, you know, which is, which came, um, you know, prior to Wipeout, when you're watching Fear Factor at home and someone, one of the contestants is up on a high beam, you know, maybe hanging from, a the, the beam is hanging 200 feet from a helicopter and they're walking across the beam. You get that tingly sensation. You feel it. And when they're doing an underwater stunt where they have to hold their breath, you're sitting at home on the couch, holding your breath and you're living vicariously through those contestants. And so when, when Fear Factor Factor came to an end. Uh, and and we were trying to come up with what's going to be the next big thing. It was like, how do we do sort of all the fun of Fear Factor uh, without the gross? And and then, um, you know, we came up with Wipeout. And, and, and when we cast Wipeout, it's really, I don't think most people out there are extreme athletes like the people that would be on Ninja. Most people are maybe a little bit more like you and I, that We may be weekend warriors and maybe on the weekends we're out, I don't know, riding our bikes or skiing or whatever. We're not conquering an extreme obstacle course. And I think that's what makes Wipeout so unique is that the people we put on it generally wouldn't be doing a show like this. And then hence... The title Wipeout. It's all about wipeouts. Like we're designing the course really for failure because we want to see people wipe out. So there's a real fine balance. You don't want everyone failing, because if everyone fails, then there's no winner. So you got to find that that happy medium of, of uh you know failure and success. But we definitely skew more towards failure because the show is called wipeout.
2: If somebody turns up in casting all like ripped and hench and obviously athletic, do you just not cast them for wipeout? It's like it's not a show for you, my friend.
1: Generally, um that would be be uh, someone that we would not put on the show. And in fact, this season, when we went into it at the very beginning, you know, we're trying to tweak the show and and you know, it's eight years later where we want to make it a little different. And so one of the thoughts was it should be more athletic. And then, you know, we started sort of casting in that direction. And it was like every contestant that was coming through was like another physical trainer, another trainer, another trainer. It just started feeling too L.A. and not relatable. And so we we pivoted and, and went back to, I think, what's really worked for us in the past, which is just get real people, big characters, uh, unlike a uh, an art show, you're only going to have 44 minutes with any set of contestants. So you may only see, you know, one, one contestant for just a few minutes of the show. So the characters should be really big so they're memorable. Well, we're doing pairs this this year. So it's the two grandmothers that came on together. That's going to be memorable. You know, we want people that, are easy to track because we do have 20 contestants over 44 minutes. So big, bold characters that are super relatable.
2: What other uh, tweaks and differences when you're bringing a format back that used to be on a broadcast network and is now going onto a cable net and obviously time has moved on, trends and fashions have moved on. What other differences and tweaks are you making to the show as you bring it back? You know, it's interesting because you said
1: we're making the transition from, from network to cable and I think most people would assume that, okay, well, we had to dumb down the show. The biggest main mandate that we had from uh, TBS, Corey Henson and her team was that if we were going to bring it back, it had to be bigger, bolder and edgier. And of course I said, well, that comes with a, a price tag. You can't be bigger. I guess you could be bolder and edgier, but you can't be bigger without a price tag attached to it. And God bless them. They were like, you know, you do what you need to do. This is not a cheap show. And they are not, you know, they did not hold back the purse strings at all for us uh, the biggest change obviously i believe is that uh, you know we brought uh, all new hosts and we brought in real serious a list celebrities um, john cena nicole bayer uh, and nicole Kostek. have brought i mean it's just the energy that they bring to the show and you know it's a, it's a different vibe having that kind of star power uh, and so to see that We're getting the kind of attention that I think the show deserves is awesome. Their chemistry together is incredible. And, you know, it's a risk you take when you put together you know, big names that don't necessarily know each other and you hope it works. We didn't do a chemistry test. We knew that we wanted these hosts. Like they they were the top of our list from day one. To be honest, we didn't think we would be able to get them. We thought that, you know, that John was, I mean, his career is exploding and, you know, he's doing massive, massive movies, Suicide Squad, Fast and Furious. And so we thought his availability wouldn't allow it. And we had to, you know, really sort of change our schedule to make that work. Um, with Nicole, we thought she was going to be tied up with her Netflix deal. Um, and we were able to work through that. Um, and, and that was a big, uh, Brandon Rieg, who was at, also at ABC with Corey back in the day, was one of the original executives on the show. Then he went on to Netflix. And so I feel like Wipeout still holds a real special place in his heart. And he was instrumental in, in helping us to be able to work out um, to get Nicole on the show. So that star power is, is, I would say, the biggest change in the show. And it's fantastic. To see how much fun they were having, like I knew this is gonna work. And I always feel like, I mean, obviously, if the hosts are having fun, that's gonna be great for the show. Um, but also if the crew's enjoying it. And that's a real barometer for me is that when we're shooting Wipeout and you know we're constantly building the next challenge. And so it's, even though we're shooting, because we're on a huge 14 acre set, we're able to keep building. Uh, And one of the most difficult parts of Wipeout is that we have to continually be reminding the construction crew You guys got to keep working because everybody wants to come to the tank and watch the wipeouts. And so I feel like, and a lot of these people are the same people that have been doing this for seven seasons prior. Um, The fact that they're still, that they still want to stop working to come and come to the edge of the tank and watch the next run uh, is a very good sign that it's still working uh, and that people are enjoying themselves out there watching it live. It's going to translate to TV.
2: Let's discuss the differences that COVID has made to this and the restrictions. Give me an idea of when the show, this show that we're going to, this series we're going to see when was it produced and how has covid changed the game for you guys so we
1: produced wipeout in the height of covid we were shooting in sort of october and november Um, But six months prior to that is when we started our build. Um, We were the largest show and I believe the largest production period, film, television, to be shooting at that time. Um, And, you know, we were following some incredibly strict guidelines. Again, TBS, um, when it came to COVID safety, there was zero restrictions. Whatever you need to do, whatever you need to spend to make this show safe, um, they gave to us not a single pushback from them at all. And, And I'm not just saying that because it sounds like the right thing to say it would they the support was incredible and we spent millions millions of their dollars on covid safety the best thing that we had going for us that most productions don't have the luxury um is that we were outside and so we had 300 people working pretty much every day but we were outside our workspaces were outside uh we created you know giant shops you know we're building massive there's a lot of construction going on out there that 300 people most of those are you know talented um artists and and construction and special effects technicians that are building the course um so they were able to do that 90% outside. We obviously had social distancing. We had a rigorous testing system set up where you know we were doing regular COVID testing of the crew. And then once we started shooting, obviously the cast was tested regularly. Our goal was that when you watch the show, you will not know that this was shot in, in COVID times. Um, I was just watching, I won't make name any names, but I was watching a game show, uh, a network game show the other morning. And it was like, oh, you know, there was, everyone was spread out. It's a it was an audience-based game show and everyone was spread out, you know, six feet and the contestants were having to wear gloves, and it just felt like this just feels so COVID to me. And we really didn't want that. And so we went above and beyond to make sure that we could produce it in a way that didn't feel like you were watching COVID because this show is about really what makes this show work is it's an escape when you watch it. When we premiered originally. We premiered right after the recession. And I think that, you know, America was sort of down. Um, And then we came out and it was this just silly popcorn game show that you didn't have to think too hard. You didn't have to, there was no politics. There was nothing depressing about it. Uh, And you could tune in with the whole family and just enjoy it. And, you know, we premiered quite successfully. And now many years later, we're premiering again in the middle of COVID depression, I think you could call it, you know, that, that, that America's is probably not feeling great. People have been trapped in their homes and we're going to premiere with this big, fun popcorn summer show that everyone can enjoy. The whole family can enjoy. It's a rare show where kids and adults want to watch together. And that's something that, that wipe out that I think is pretty unique to wipe out. This is something that brings the family together. Seems so simple, uh, but there's just not that many shows out there that kids and adults want to watch together. And this year, you know, I mentioned is definitely more edgy. I think, you know, Nicole Byer has a certain brand of humor that is edgy. John Cena plays along with that quite well and, and Camille too. And But that edge will go right over the heads of your six-year-old or your 10-year-old. The adults are going to sort of enjoy those edgier jokes. And, you know, because we're no longer ABC Disney, we can get away with that on TBS. And we've pushed it right to the limit, you know, right to the edge. Sometimes we've had to pull back, but we, you know, we definitely are edgier, but that's okay. Because everything that we, whenever we get edgy, we say like, okay, is this going to be offensive to that parent that's watching with their eight-year-old? And hopefully no, because that parent will know that kid will have no clue what that joke means. The kid's gonna be watching the wipeouts and loving it and the, you know, more blue jokes will just fly right over their heads.
2: Is this a key trend coming out of COVID? Not only the sort of feel good escapism stuff, but that that co-viewing that you've talked about because obviously a lot of people and for, for a good while yet are locked together in their homes. I mean, it's it's kind of the perfect show, right? Is it, is it a wider trend? It's a good question.
1: I hope that it's not and that we're the only ones that have figured it out, but it probably <laughs> is a trend. I mean, I, I'm not that smart. Uh, we'll see. You know, we'll have to see what starts coming out in the next few months i know um tbs has go big which is also quite successful for them you know which is a, a big sort of fun family friendly loud show that i think is probably very similar in the sense uh, as far as bringing that same audience so i think tbs has figured it out
2: was there ever a point because although it is outdoors like you say it's a huge undertaking with a with a lot of casting and crew and, and builders involved usually the advantage of formats and factual is it's a smaller crew than drama in this covid time but yours is a huge undertaking it's also got an obstacle course which presumably has to be sprayed down cleaned off after every contestant that in itself sounds nightmarish was there ever a point where you thought about delaying production or it was on the cards that production would have to be put back or halted on this it was a
1: constant fear from months before we started because the county and we followed the county guidelines and the county was constantly changing those guidelines as as covid was spiking and so uh Every day we thought we were going to get shut down. Um, And once a week, there would be a rumor, you know, I remember we were probably a week away from shooting the, the wipeout zone, which is shot at night. And we heard, it wasn't just a rumor. It came out publicly that night shoots were going to be canceled. And it was like, oh my God, you know, we got this far. We shot the whole show. All we have are four night shoots left, but those four night shoots are the finale of each of the 20 episodes. So if we can't shoot those and we get delayed, then we lose Cena because Cena's off to do his next project, we would be in really big trouble. Uh, And then the next day, the county corrected itself and said, no, we're not gonna cancel night shoots. But that was sort of a typical um, scenario for us. All of the protocols that we put in place worked. Um, We didn't have a single case of COVID. And again, 300 people a day for months and months. Uh, The odds should have been that there should have been much more COVID on set. We didn't have a single case until Thanksgiving. And we knew, Because everyone said, look, when Thanksgiving happens and everyone goes home and starts to travel, that's when you're going to see a spike in cases. But- the great news is, is that although we did start to see a few cases pop up, and I can count them on one hand, um, they were isolated cases, and we never had any spread. Because of our system, we were able to identify them immediately. And there was, you know, there was contestants, uh, the contestants had to be tested multiple times. So there was contestants that never made it to set that we found out had it, but they were not under our control, right? So they were off living their lives, were about to come to set, would be tested. Um, and in one of the multiple tests would discover that, uh oh, they have COVID. So they're out. That was a constant battle. But we never had any spread on the set. Um, they were isolated cases that we were able to remove from the set. They were able to get healthy. And then some of them were able to come back in, in, you know, in a timely manner. The contestants, that was, you know, we cast hundreds of people. There's 400 people that are on the show. And so for 400, we had like 700 ready to go on standby and by the time we got to the last episode it was like oh my god are we going to make it because again we didn't those people were not under our control you know the contestants were out living in the real world not being tested regularly not necessarily following the same social distancing and masking that that we were requiring on set Nobody was walking around their home with electrostatic guns. It looks like someone right out of Ghostbusters where it's the special, very expensive unit that like you can spray anything with. Uh, You can spray electronic equipment. You you could literally spray people. It would be safe and it somehow uh, cleans everything. So we had all that in place on set, but out in the real world, that didn't exist. So we saw contestants dropping out at a pretty significant rate and just got by. I mean, by the time we got to our final episode, it was like, oh my God, are we actually going to have enough people to pull this off? And we did, but it was close, very close.
2: Obviously Wipeout's got, um, it's got a reputation and it's got a a backstory that will give a broadcaster confidence in what the show is going to look like and that you guys are going to be able to to produce it. As you're looking forward and developing new ideas to pitch to broadcasters, are you thinking studios and socially distanced and minimal participants or are you still thinking big, crazy reality ideas, given the COVID times that we're in?
1: It's interesting. Uh, the week, I would say the week after the lockdown, so back in March, um, my company, we had our most successful week ever. And we sold three shows, um, two to Fox and one to HBO Max. And all three shows uh, were not necessarily designed for covid You know, it's just because obviously they've been created before. It was just bizarre timing that we were in that same week they all sold. Having said that, those three shows are all still in development. You know, they're at the networks, but they're, they're big shows that, you know, you may not want to rush out and shoot today. I think that we are now, hopefully there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're starting to see that as more and more people get vaccinated and hopefully those shows will be happening quite soon.
2: But still big ideas.
1: Yeah, I'm not, you know, look, my brand is, I really think, you know, with Fear Factor and Wipeout, not only are they big shows, but they're big shows that work internationally. Fear Factor uh, was produced by many, many countries. Uh, Wipeout, uh, we did... 45 different versions in Argentina it just it translates watching people fall down is sort of the oldest kind uh, of <laughs> comedy uh, and so that translates in any language uh, and so i you know i know that that's what sort of i do well So I'm not shying away from that. And I'm continuing to create big shows. And I don't think that the landscape is going to change drastically in the future because of COVID. I think that obviously, I know that obviously in the last year, it has changed. I mean, look at the Grammys, the way that was produced and, you know, no live audience. And and unfortunately, that had a pretty big effect on the ratings, I think. Relatively low numbers, as I think when you're watching something like when you're watching a concert, a big live concert, which the Grammys essentially is, you know, you want to see that. Live feeling of the audience and seeing twelve people sitting at socially distanced tables is probably not the best way to watch the Grammys.
2: Just picking up on that that game show you mentioned earlier, that nameless game show that you could tell was filmed in COVID times. I guess it affects the repeatability of these shows, doesn't it? If wipe if this if your Wipeout version looks like a COVID show, they're not going to be able to repeat that and sell it around the world two years from now because nobody's going to want to be reminded yeah. of this time, right?
1: As much as COVID was
2: surrounding us
1: it's never mentioned once in our show in fact i was watching a cut the other day where and there's this uh amazing rocket launch into the whiteout zone. Uh, and so, you know, we show the contestant getting into the rocket and it's it's silver. So it's very reflective. And you see a crew member sort of locking them into the rocket, which is a, you know, sort of a dramatic moment as we're building up the tension because they're going to get flung 40 feet in the air and slammed down into the water. But I could see that the crew member was wearing a mask. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. We got to cut that out because we've done such a good job of like not having, you know, we don't have our host on like, on a, you know, you see those, Uh, In the early days, you saw like on CNN, they'd have that big stick microphone and they would be standing so far away. And, you know, so we don't have that. Everyone was super tested. And so because everyone was tested so much, the host, Camille, was able to stand within a reasonable distance of the contestants. Um, The contestants were all tested. So they were able to run the course together. And uh, again, we were able, it worked. Um, Whatever we did worked because we didn't have any COVID spread.
2: Finally, we've seen the transformative effects, the this us streamers arms race has had on genres like drama uh feature documentaries where do you what effect do you see it having on formats you mentioned you've been pitching a show to, to hbo max obviously netflix and and these streamers have dabbled in formats in in different ways so far they spend big money on television series what effect on the the formats business in particular do you see the streamers and the streamer war having
1: i mean look as as a producer you know, we love having the streamers because it's just another place to sell to. I think in the long run, it may affect us that, you know, again, we were able to produce Wipeout in 40 plus countries. If you're on a streamer, you may not be able to do that because, you know, a Netflix or an HBO Max, is they tend to be international. However, having said that, you could do a show for Netflix um, and and I've, I've seen them do it where you do multiple versions for Netflix. And so, you know, that's essentially the same if I'm producing or involved in the production of 20 different foreign versions for Netflix, you know, that's going to be, you know, that'll, that'll probably be as lucrative as, you know, selling a show internationally and, and producing that, you know, for other countries, we're just happy to have more places to sell to ultimately. And there, and there's a, and there's a lot of streamers and, you know, A lot of streamers need a lot of content, and that's good for the business.
0: Matt Kunitz discussing the new version of Wipeout, which debuts on TBS in the US tomorrow. UK natural history specialist Humblebee Films teamed with Australia's Sea Light Pictures on new three part documentary Life in Colour with David Attenborough for the BBC and Netflix. Humblebee founder and managing director Stephen Dunleavy spoke to Clive Whittingham about the show, where natural history sits amid streamers pouring money into the genre, but with Covid restrictions still challenging, and the recent hire of icon film Stephen McQuillan to lead international expansion.
3: Uh, Humblebee Films has been going since 2009 and is an indie that focuses on natural history um, with some science and a little bit of history thrown in there as well
2: the big thing on your slate at the moment I guess is uh, is life in color that's uh, that's probably what people are, are reading about uh, Humblebee for at the moment why don't you tell us a little bit about that project to, to begin with uh,
3: Well, life in color it, it came about sort of through two avenues we you know we worked a lot with David Attenborough over the years we did a full series of David Attenborough's natural Curiosities for UK TV and BBC and BBC studios as well and we always were talking ideas with David and what we can do next uh, we also just finished a a special for BBC One on the life of the Elephant. And we were talking to a a great cameraman called Alex Jones, who was keen to do something on colour and had come in to talk to us, a natural history cameraman. So we, together we worked up an idea and we developed it further and we went to see David and talked through the idea because we thought this might appeal to him. And it it really did. We we didn't know. Uh, He got very excited and uh, opened up a a book on colour and patterns that he's had for many years and said, actually, as a series producer, this is going back quite a long time, more than 60 years. As a series producer at the BBC, he wanted to do a series on colour. And of course, in those days, it was black and white. <laughs> so he was rather restricted and uh, he ended up calling it the Patterns of Animal. And uh, so since then, I think he's been quite excited by the idea of doing something that focuses on colour. And we've always prided ourselves on doing natural history that kind of crosses genres a little bit. We do blue chip natural history, but it comes at it from a different angle. We don't really go with ideas based around habitats. We, we try and find something new. And when we're thinking about these ideas, is. And for us, colour was kind of bringing science, new discoveries in science, new discoveries with camera technology that scientists are using, and combining that to actually look at how animals use colour in their everyday lives. And I think that's what appealed to David. And we we went to the BBC, uh, they were interested, but as always with discussions, they take a while, you know, take a long time to get off the ground. I think it took more than a year. In the meantime, we also had started working with uh co-production partners called Sea Light in Australia. And part of the reason for that is that we were introduced them through a through to, um, the head of flame John Corden and um we knew we'd wanted to film Australia it's a very colourful continent so we started developing a co-production idea and it was actually through Like through going back they had a contact at Netflix that uh, Netflix came on board they got interested and it kind of snowballed. once we had the different players of Channel nines uh, in Australia Netflix and BBC on board we managed to get to a budget that we felt we could uh, work with and, and actually start making colour and and it's two years from then just over two years making
2: it Not a problem um, having I mean it's the, the old co-production um, problem of having so many masters to satisfy and cutting different edits and things, not not a problem on, on this one?
3: No, actually, I think everybody was pretty much in sync. I mean, the advantage of the David Attenborough series is that you know he, he carries weight in terms of judgment on what he thinks is right, and he has a, a, a very strong say, and quite rightly so. And he, he is always spot on, I think, um, in his judgment. But also they want that value of David, so so they want the same product in a sense. Uh, and that helps tremendously. And you know, we did have to navigate a few differences of opinions on various script points or edits but you know everybody compromised in, in, in a positive way so so we you know it the the edits were long but we we got there and the same there are slight variations in the programs that are going out but that's because netflix don't have 10 minutes on the end they're doing an extended behind the science uh whereas the bbc use a minutes. On. so they're very
2: much the same content which is
3: slightly being refashioned for the different
2: platforms obviously bristol is is the capital of natural history production um in the UK. And uh, is a big part of your your company's slate. Natural history is it the perfect genre for the COVID? times and the pandemic and the production restrictions because it's literally one or two guys filming in the middle of nowhere is it a problem because there's so much international travel and there's going to be all these travel restrictions and things like that where where does it land on the line
3: I, the answer is yes to both of us and uh interestingly when it when we you know COVID first hit i thought gosh natural history is going to be
2: really really badly affected
3: because we do travel But as time went on, you know, we we did put some projects on ice for a little bit of time, trying to work your way through how to deal with it. But once you realise, as you you were saying, that actually we film in quite remote places, and that means if if you've got good crew in those areas or can get crew there, so filming remotely, you are away from big populated areas very often. And so in a sense, you you can carry on filming. And we realised, I mean, I realised drama was going to be badly affected because it's often huge numbers of people together. So, so yes, there is that side of natural history allowing you to carry on to some extent. But the limitations are that, you know, the dynamics of COVID and how it's spreading in different countries and what's happening in different countries internationally is changing all the time. So as you begin to focus on a country, say in Africa, that you think might might be opening up or might be accessible, it can suddenly just evaporate because you know there's been an outbreak. So it's a bit of both, really. And we try to we have used a lot of local crews. But funnily enough, we were already engaging a lot of local crews for Life in Colour before COVID hit. You know, a lot of you know, our filming in India was local cameramen filming or, or tapping into what they were doing. So we were already on on that kind of path, I suppose, because it's for us. That that's a very important step forward I and mean, everybody is now considering you know climate change and how you know do we have to travel as much we are where where we can and we think even necessary trying to send directors out but we are still all looking for local camera operators or local sound recorders where we can too so so it's a mixed bag really
2: like you say, I guess there was a push towards that anyway before this, because it, it's slightly hypocritical to make natural history films while flying around in, in big jets to, to make them. It's, this, it's the great sort of juxtaposition of uh, natural history filmmaking. Do you think this is accelerating that push towards using local crews and less flying? Is that going to be the big takeaway on the on the back of it? I
3: think so. I think we, we are really digging deeper, I suppose, into who is positioned where and um, what their skills are. And can we help them? Can we get kids that they might not have? Um, it depends on the countries you're going to i mean some countries maybe are, are very limited in the kind of specialist training that natural history camera operators tend to have um, so there will be occasions where you want your specialist camera operator who's filming birds in flight filming hummingbird in flight is absolutely not impossible if you're a general camera operator and uh so you do need to have that specialist training so it's a mix really i think where possible we want to tap into local talent and really help nurture them as well and give them the the help to try and sort of bring their skills on in some cases they've got excellent skills and they're just there and ready for us. In other cases they might need a bit uh, a bit more help but in, in other cases we we still need to sometimes get that specialist cam operator um or director in some cases they feel it's a tricky shoot on location it's trying to get a balance and trying to put climate at the top of that as well do we need to do
2: this netflix were involved in the project like you say they and the other streamers seem to really like natural history at the moment very buzzy genre obviously their algorithms are telling them that people are are, are lapping it up and binging it in the way that, that their subscription model requires what difference is that making to the genre having players like that Coming into it, because it used to be the sort of Doyen of the public broadcasters. Now you've got big players like Netflix coming in. Presumably, good news for a company like like yours. But what difference uh, What difference is it making to the genre? Do you think?
3: I mean, it is quite a boom time at the moment for natural history, um, and I, I, that's great for for as you say for companies like us. In terms of the difference it makes, it's great in that they're you know they are willing to back projects that might have risk, you know, which in the past the BBC have always done. I think they've taken you know risks on you know things like uh, Blue Planet original planet was a high risk at the time you know and it's great to see other organizations streamers willing to to put money up and say no we'll go for this um but it's i think also it just brings um you know multitude of voices really i think the fact that we we are always trying to pitch different ideas which may or may not be attractive to the bbc but somebody like netflix or um, you know, Discovery Plus, who are just beginning to talk to, but they might say, well, actually, we're looking for a different take on this. And so I think it opens up the landscape a little bit. Inevitably, there's a problem that there can be a tendency sometimes to want to film the same subject, you know, the bigger elements all the time. But I think if you can find a different story avenue for each of those, there's no reason why that can't work. For example, we, one of the things I'm very proud of, you know, apart from the new technology, like in colour, is we try to sort of turn the story around so you're always looking at it from the colour point of view with the animals. So there's flamingos uh, in, in South America, in our first episode, they were filmed for Perfect Planet. The Perfect Planet story was about the crash and about the young being attacked and killed. We turned it around and it was very much a look at what happens when you lose your colour as an adult flamingo, because that's what happens. They get drained of colour and they have to sit out the dogs and they can't take part and they can't breathe that. It's a natural process. But it's just putting a different take on that story. So I think you just have to be quite imaginative uh, when you're pitching to these different different uh, platforms, really.
2: You mentioned Discovery Plus, their um, huge launch and their, their 11 million, I think, subscribers on their their first set of results recently. Is that a game changer for Factual in the same way that Netflix was for drama a few years ago? I mean, where do they figure on uh, on your your uh, radar at the minute? Well,
3: you know, for us, it's, it's a positive, really, because I think... Uh, I, I get the impression we are only just really sort of talking a little bit of Discovery Plus, but that, again, it's opening up another avenue where the sort of content that we make is, is attractive. And I think, you know, so, and here's an international player, you know, they are, and they're known for their quality of output in terms of you know the, everything in the natural history, science, history area. So it's going to be a positive thing for us because that's we are trying to expand our genre as well and where, where we're looking with Stephen McQuillan's appointment. So so for us that's a that's a positive thing. And I think Discovery is a brand. You know, it's a brand that's known worldwide, and people will pick up on it. So we we will really be keen to engage. We're just beginning to do that process now.
2: You've uh, you've hired Stephen McQuillan, who's who's been a bit of a regular on our podcast over the years at Real Screen and things like that from Icon Film another bristol-based company tell us a little bit about him that hire, and uh, why you've uh, brought him in
3: we i'd greatly admire what, what Stephen's done at icon i think he's he's done lots of great uh, broad sweep of projects uh, he's been he was there for a long time and um you know so when we heard that he was coming free um then we thought wow you know i've spoken to him in the past about just just as colleagues working in the industry we made it got us thinking we've been thinking we are expanding quite a lot you know I, we've taken on quite a few projects i've been running will be for for 10 years i've got a great team with me but well, we realized we probably needed somebody at a creative director level to take on uh, um Projects that I I couldn't necessarily handle at the same time, and as well, and the same, we also were looking to expand our range as, of output as well. And we, as, I, as I've said before, with the sort of things that we do, tend to have a little crossover into other genres. You know, our Jumbo film was history, really. It was Who Do You Think You Are? of an elephant with David Attenborough. Uh, our Natural Curiosity was history with a bit of science, really. And, like the Colors a bit of science. So we've all sort of dipped our toes into crossing those genres, and I think Stephen has a, a, a greater breadth than those kind of specialist factuals. It's called. That kind of territory, and he's done a lot more. So for for me, it felt very natural that someone like him could come in and help us expand that that uh, slate and those ideas. And and also, he's he's worked a lot with uh, uh, American
2: broadcasters as well, which
3: is something that we're we're really looking to America a lot more. So it was a very positive step for us.
2: Is it going to be this expansion that you guys are eyeing? Is it going to be? different forms of natural history for a broader range of platforms or are you going to go into other areas of factual factual no. entertainment how what's the uh, the roadmap is the trendy term at the moment
3: we are we are expanding into different genres but within the factual space but it's a kind of the primary push is to kind of keep within the what we're known as but also take the ethos of maybe what we do in terms of trying to shine a different light from a different aspect on something and see if we can apply that to other genres in, in especially as factual um, but you know we if we have ideas in the factual space that we feel we could pitch then we we will engage with that and we have actually pitched factual general broader general factual ideas in the past but we, our core will remain for now uh, natural history slash science but we are keen to just move move into those other genres where we can and and Stephen I think can take us along that route because he's done history he's done well he's done journalism as well you know if there's a current affairs we could apply that to conservation story you know we're keen to explore that as well not just be limited we're not just people who chip is lovely for us we're not just about that we want to engage in different different levels with what we do
2: i want to talk a little bit about what 2021 into 2022 looks like for you guys maybe the best place to start with that is how 2020 was because presumably you had all kinds of plans around this time last year and then obviously the the world fell apart so what did 2020 look like for you guys for a start
3: 2020 you know it was tough like for everybody else you know uh we we didn't we did have a hiatus we, we have another project which is a, a, a series big series in production we did have a slight hiatus on that but that's back up and running and so we managed to 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 really keep going life in color was almost close to the edits but we did have to reduce down an episode because we couldn't quite finish so well, it was a lot of sort of um i suppose firefighting really um to begin with just about how we're going to finish these series and and we we were developing our slate and getting some traction with other ideas which maybe took a little bit of backseat for a couple of months while we were trying to fire fight through these things. But actually, I think we came, we feel we came out of 2020 relatively, you know, unscathed, you know, and so we're very pleased about that. That's, the team were fantastic. It's really hard, isn't it, for everybody? We've all had to do this, to to transition into working from home, to having that motivation to keep going, even though things, the rug keeps getting pulled from underneath your feet. And it did feel like that a lot, you know, we, we, we oh, we got this, oh no, we can't do that. Oh, we'll do this, we can't do that. So, and that carries on a little bit now, but we kind of got used to plotting our way around that. And so it's working a bit better. So I think for us, 21 is looking very positive and um, going forward, you know, this is, we, we have various things which are in various stages of development, stroke, have money in place, about to start, all that kind of stuff. So so we're, we're very excited. I think it's going to be a really, really good year. and We think it's going to just ramp up even more over the next couple of years, which would be great. And now that Stephen's here, we expect an addition of his brain, bringing in, adding value to the ideas that we have, or the things that are beginning to get going, but also bringing the new ideas that he's thinking
2: about. Does it make you look more local? Obviously, the UK is at the moment doing quite well with the vaccine. Compared to other countries, so are you thinking like let's do some domestic projects that will tide us over? You know, we'll definitely be able to film in the UK. It will keep the lights on and, and looking further ahead for international. Or are you maintaining the the strategy and ambition that you had?
3: No, we are very much building on on our inter- international storytelling, really, and and the kind of building on what we've done with Atom's Life in Colour and that that blue chip, you know, with maybe a science twist on it, that is very central to what we're thinking. And that will be international. um It will be global. But you know we do occasionally have the odd um, story, either somebody dreams up or pops onto our desk some thought which is UK based, and we we do pitch those. And um, we've got some talent in the UK. We're really keen to work up, and we think are kind of they are for me what I would call the heartland of the UK. They really and I really want to to work with them. So so we are a, looking at UK ideas, but I think our main output will probably remain primarily uh, internationally.
2: Broadcasters are trying to square this circle of um, of everybody is watching more television and more content at the moment because there's not a lot else to do, but also at the same time, there's obviously an economic problem coming down the tracks, which is going to affect ad revenues and therefore program budgets and things like that. Has that started to filter down to you guys yet? And how do you solve that? Is it just more co-production rather than single commissions? How, how do you see that playing out?
3: I think it really depends on the broadcaster or the network. And I think, you know, we, all, we have, everybody knows we they've all taken a hit and we have the BBC might have taken a little hit on, on some of their projects. But, you know, we know that natural history example sells pretty well internationally so and there's a demand so I, I, I and and but it costs to do it well it does cost um so I, I don't see that easing off at all you know it may be that some streamers or broadcasters might might have fewer of those possibly but i still think the cost is going to be the same yes you do have to be nimble we we all we have traditionally done a lot of co-production um we we also do straight commissions as well but some of these things aren't costly and we do continue to sort of try and get co, co-production money in place. but i i think the appetite is so strong there still and and the audience is wanting it i think the the networks and streamers are still going to want to invest heavily in it it's my feeling
2: finally i mean this is so difficult because we don't really know what what's going to happen from one week to the next at the moment so planning and uh, things like that as a business owner must be a nightmare but as we look ahead sort of through this year into next what's the biggest opportunity the biggest challenge facing you you guys at the moment i mean try and give us a flavor of your strategy as best you can
3: well I, the big the challenge are still inevitably COVID. I mean, I think even though we are, we feel we're managing to work well within the constraints. You know, it, it came out of nowhere, didn't it? And and we got variants popping up all over the place. I think that's still a major cause of concern about how you work around those, and it's a challenge for you. And we, and I think we will, but of course it will throw certain things up in the air sometimes. So I think that's probably the biggest concern for me is just just making sure we can still continue to weave our way around the kind of curveballs that we get around that. Um, I think. There's long-term strategy strategy really for us is to in the next few years we are very keen to grow the company and we we are keen to expand into those other genres gradually and we're keen really to i think you know we do engage we're doing stuff for netflix we're doing um, we've done stuff for smith same in the past um we are keen to be engaging more with some other american networks as well that we might not have worked with traditionally and that's an important strategy for us we we are we feel what we deliver is desirable internationally and so we're, we're keen to engage people who might have a you know, international footprint and, and want to reach audiences globally. I think that's all we can deliver. And that's kind of our main strategies.
0: Stephen Dunlevy from Humble Bee Films, speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.